acquire language in one way and only one way, when we understand messages. We call this comprehensible input. Well, I think you know who that was. <laughs> <laughs> who, who was wait, who, who was that? Who are we? That, that's an intruder. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the comprehensible input show. Uh, for the moment. <laughs> Okay, so uh, welcome to the fourth episode of the Extensive Reading Podcast. Let me say this time, uh, we're taking an intensive look at ext extensive reading. And uh, this is Jose and... Travis, as always, good to be here. And uh, that, that was... That our was, third? Yeah. That our was, third member was? That, that was Stephen Krashen, of course, uh, who's going to be uh, in the debate. Okay. And uh, apart from Travis, Krashen and me, we also have uh, Tom Robb. Uh, the second part of the of the interview that I know many of you are waiting for. Um, so that's the plan. That's the plan for today. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Let's get into continuing the debate. Continuing the debate. Sure. Uh, I didn't like to hear my voice the other day. Uh, so <laughs> I just brought somebody who can express himself in a much better way. And that was, that was Stephen Krashen. So what I did is I took this video, which is available on YouTube. It's a 15-minute long video. I think it's from the 90s. It's, it's a very old video. Uh, Let's play it. Um, here, yeah, I, can, I um, can play it right here. My experience took place in 1974 when I was briefly living in exile from California, working at the City University of New York at Queens College as director of English as a Second Language. And like everyone else in New York, we lived in a big apartment building. And the apartment next door to us was owned by a Japanese company. And every year, there'd be a new family in the apartment. And every year, there were the children who couldn't speak English. And there I was, director of English as a Second Language. I will teach English to these children and brag about it to my friends. So I remember going up to the little girl next door. She was uh, four years old. Her name was Itomi. And I didn't know about this material on language acquisition then. Nobody did. And I thought then the way you get people to acquire a language is you get them to practice talking. So I tried to get her to talk. I'd say, uh, Itomi, talk to me. Say good morning. Say hi. No response. Well, clearly I decided I've got to make this more concrete. Itomi, say ball. No response. Well, obviously I've got to break it down to, into its component parts. Let's work on initial consonants. Say, bah, look at my lips. Again, no response. Uh, there's a theory going around then that a lot of people still believe that children don't really want to acquire language. You have to kind of force it out of them. So I tried that. I won't give you the ball until you say ball. That didn't work either. No matter what I said, he told me wouldn't speak. She didn't say anything the first week. She didn't say anything the second week. The first month. The second month. Five months until she started to speak. Actually, that's not entirely true. Uh, children during this stage do uh, pick up certain expressions from the other children in the neighborhood. They're, it's not real language. Uh, they, they understand approximately uh, what they mean. It's not, it, again, it's not real language. They have a rough idea what it means. They use it in roughly appropriate situations. Things like, uh, leave me alone, get out of here. In fact, one child I knew, the only thing he could say was, I kick your ass, said it everywhere. wasn't quite sure what it meant. After about five months, Itomi started to speak. And several things were interesting about her language. First, it looked a lot like first language acquisition, the same process our children went through. One word, two words, 
gradually getting more complicated. Second, it came quickly. By the time Itomi and her family went back to Japan at the end of the year, her English was closing in on the way the other children in the neighborhood were talking. The question is this, what was going on during those five months? She was listening. She was picking out comprehensible input. When she started to speak, it was not the beginning of her language acquisition. Let me repeat that. When she started to speak, it was not the beginning of her language acquisition. It was the result of all the comprehensible input she had gotten over those five months. Now, a silent period for a child in a situation like this is not pathological. It's normal. It's what you expect. You'd like to have a silent period, wouldn't you? How would it be if you had to study another language, but you went to a class where you didn't have to say anything? Doesn't that sound wonderful? You can talk all you want. You can raise your hand. You can volunteer. But no one's going to call on you. No one's going to put you on the spot. Also, in this perfect class, if the input is incomprehensible, it's the teacher's fault, not yours. That's how we're doing it now. And the results we're getting aren't a little better than other methods. They're actually much, much better. Uh, before I leave this topic, let me put in a brief commercial message for speaking. I'm not opposed to speaking. I think when students speak, it's fine. But what counts in speaking is not what you say, but what the other person says to you. In other words, when you get involved in conversation, what counts is the input that you can stimulate from other people. So I'm in favor of student speaking, but we have to understand it makes an indirect, a helpful but indirect contribution to language acquisition. Thank you. Yeah, there, there he was. <laughs> um, You'd like a silent period, wouldn't you? Uh, who wouldn't? <laughs> um, yeah, many silent periods. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Why did you bring it in? What, what prompted uh, Krashen? Um, well, what Krashen, uh, well, yeah, of course, I, I believe that comprehensible input is free. It's the whole thing behind um, extensive reading. So I mm -hmm. think it was very appropriate to bring it in. Uh, as we mentioned before, whether you agree that comprehensible input alone would do or that you need something else, but I think we all agree that um, our students need massive amounts of uh, yeah. input. Yeah. And I think Krashen is a reference for many, many people in extensive reading, so I thought it would be yeah, interesting to bring the man absolutely. directly, his voice, not just uh, paraphrasing what he has to say. And I discovered this video recently, and it was really—it's really brief. It's 15 minutes, mm. and I—I uh, think it's really um, well. He—he he explains himself very well, and those 15 minutes are very illustrative for anybody who's um, interested. We haven't listened to the other parts of the video where he talks about, say, the effective filter uh, hypothesis or. Uh, the way uh, lessons should be if you're. Um, consistent with the idea of comprehensible input. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you see the video, uh, he's very, very clear about those. And it's very short. So I would, as I said, I would recommend it to, to anybody uh, who's interested in ER and input. Mm. Um, so what do you think? I uh, actually I agreed with a lot of, of what he said in that segment. And I think I think we, we take it for granted, the things we agree we agree with just so freely. And maybe setting this this video in like a, a certain context, because he was speaking as if his ideas were revolutionary, and I think at the time they were, mm -hmm. and even now some of the things he says are are up for debate. But when he said things like um, giving talking about this girl, 
Hitomi? Yeah. Hitomi? When she started to speak, it wasn't the beginning of her acquisition. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course, right? Of course, like, when she was getting messages and when she was um, dealing with input, that was that was the beginning. And I, I don't know if anybody would disagree with that anymore. Well, the consequence is that you should be uh, giving these students a the right to a silent period, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's even, I mean, today you go to a language class and from the first day you're going to be asked to, to speak, right? And yeah. uh, so I think it, it's not something that we actually take for granted. I think even today that would make, it would make a lot of sense to... Yes and no. I think, um, so he talks about in, in, a, in a class, you don't, you don't have to speak. Wouldn't everybody like a silent period? I love the way he said that. Yeah. But he, he quickly um, took that back and says, well you, well, you can speak in a class. And I think our students, maybe not many of your students, but I think as, as your students get older and they're learning language mm -hmm. later, they, they don't want a silent period. They, maybe they're learning language for, for their work. For, for a specific reason and right off the bat they want to mm -hmm. they want to be practicing they want to be speaking they want to feel like they're getting their money worth in in their language learning of or course. acquisition and so i think in that sense mm. yeah, it depends on the kind of the kind, the kind of students and age has a lot to do with that because if you're working with teenagers yeah. they would really appreciate a silent it, uh, yeah the right to silence <laughs> yeah. maybe junior high school uh, in particular yeah <laughs> uh, and I, I think also age is important and uh he talks a lot about yeah this is a four-year-old right yeah. <laughs> and so can we really say the way a four-year-old acquires language is the same as the way an adult acquires language that's probably the weakest part of his argument mm -hmm. yeah i can i can i can see that i mean i know um like critical period hypothesis or other people have said sensitive period hypothesis mm -hmm. says that no right it, it is different after you hit puberty you you don't learn language as well so yeah, definitely. But it might be that you don't, I would say, maybe the mechanisms are similar, it's just that the results are not as good. The results yeah. are definitely not as good, yeah, that's yeah. that's for sure. Uh, but it might be, I mean, if it's not that way, why should it be a different way? Um, why mm -hmm. should you get, well, yeah. I would try the way we learn languages or we acquire languages as before, before puberty. Mm -hmm. I would keep on trying that way. It's the one. Yeah. Yeah, and I, but mm, going back to what I said earlier, I think I think it's just slow. Okay. And I think um, <laughs> so. Maybe for for my students or for adult students, um, they have a, a need that surpasses the the speed at which you're going to learn from just input alone. Yeah, there's one more point in in Crashen that I'd like to bring up. I I thought it was really interesting when he talked about uh, speaking and the role of speaking. And he said, um, oh, I'm not against speaking. Speaking is, is, but it's more about the messages or the... It's about understanding what the other people, what the other person tells to you. Yes. More than about what, what you, you say. say. Yeah. And I think, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's important. Definitely it's important. And I think that's a necessary part of interaction is, is making... Um, your interlocutor's output more comprehensible for your own input. Mm -hmm. 
you're going towards the negotiation of meaning. Yeah, there. exactly. That's yeah. really important. I mean, that's that's long. That's Michael Long, right? Sure. Um, but also, I think, and I brought this up last week, and I I still think it's true. So I'm going to hold to it that when you when you speak, you're forced to to not only think semantically about meaning, but you're forced to oh, I, I have to put this into a way that is comprehensible for my interlocutor mm -hmm. and that forces you to think in a different way than just meaning sure the only problem i see with that is that you you just you're assuming that you think about your message in a way that maybe we we don't like when you when you're fluent when you're speaking a language fluently you don't think in terms of um syntax you don't think oh where am i going to place my direct object yeah. now so in you our... might you might be consciously making an effort to make your message uh, adequate to the situation and comprehensible mm. to to the listener but you wouldn't think of the components of your language in those terms you would be yeah choosing in terms of the register uh yep. and of, of course i think um Krashen is is maybe against grammar teaching and so he doesn't want his, his students to think grammatically mm -hmm. but i don't think our students are fluent enough to just be able to draw upon knowledge that they don't have And so even if they have this silent period, which may or may not be necessary, sure. depending on how, I think it's <laughs> or good. convenient. Yeah. Um, I still think it's, it's really important and really uh, difficult when you're, when you're making a message to, to make it in a way that's, that's comprehensible for your inter interlocutor. And I think you do have to think about how you're going to say it. And even in, in my, In my Japanese, my experience of Japanese, or maybe I'm going to make a phone call, and that's stressful. And like <laughs> I play that conversation in my head: what am I going to say? How am I going to? I'm going to do this in a way that that this person is going to understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps a lot from when I would just go into it uh, blind, or when I receive a phone call. Sure, but th does it help from the point of view of acquisition? I mean, it it does. It probably does help from the point of view of communication, and mm -hmm. that point in time uh, for that conversation in terms of speech acts and uh, maybe negotiation of meaning. Yeah, all that conscious effort is going to pay off in terms of communication. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that has that effect on your own acquisition of Japanese. And I think that's the perfect place to, to leave it. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a, a good place to continue, right? Continue on our debate for future weeks. Is that the same? Is that acquisition we'll be, or is it not? We'll be thinking about it. We'll be thinking about <laughs> it. Good. So, Tom Robb, today we are finishing up our interview that we started last week. And uh, we kind of have to give this some context. Mm -hmm. So, what we were doing, we were listening to Tom. He was giving us kind of a long history on extensive reading. He talked about his own experience in, in making a program. He talked about the Extensive Reading Foundation. And actually, in between that, uh, Jose, you had mentioned and you'd asked him uh, about graded readers. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where this interview picks up is asking, we asked Tom, uh, when did graded readers become available? Because he started doing this before. Using books for native English, yeah, English speakers. Before graded yeah. readers were, were a thing and he was just using books um, for native speakers. So. so in that context, he started to talk very, very naturally. He kind <laughs> of started to talk about quizzing. Yeah, uh, quizzing. These, these students on the books they they were reading. And this is what this part of the interview 
deals with, uh, say, a program that many of you in the audience know, which is the M Reader, which used to be the Moodle Reader, uh, which is very popular. And it, it's a very useful tool uh, for many people implementing ER programs. Um, and he tells us the story of the M Reader. Yeah, so we'll let him do that. Here we go. By the time um, Bamford and Day came out, ex uh, graded readers had become avail available, but there actually weren't uh, that many different series to choose from. And, you know, they have slowly evolved, like um, the Heinemann readers were bought by Macmillan and became part of the Macmillan series. And uh, then the Macmillan, Macmillan made their own books, but they call them the same level, but actually they're very difficult in... Um, the difficulty and there was a little messy, but slowly um, the graded readers evolved. That's a, you know a very different story about how they have developed and how they've gone so many different di uh, directions. Sure. Yeah, but um, it was about that time. Um, they actually were available earlier, but the schools weren't buying them because very few people knew about them, and even if. You had graded readers. How do you get your students to read them was another issue. And so, you know, um, of course you can do the summaries, mm -hmm. um, which is what we did with the other, the older material. But um, I felt a need that there had to be some way to check that the students are really doing the work. Uh, it's part of my pedagogical philosophy that 80% of students won't do the work unless you actually have some way to check that they did it, uh -huh. okay? And um, it's not that they're lazy. Some of them are, of course. But if they have a limited amount of time, they're going to spend that time on what they think will give them the highest reward. And extensive reading, while it's good, you don't see the immediate benefit. It takes a long time for the benefit to accumulate. But if you take that time and spend it working on a paper for another class, you know, you get a better paper, you get a better grade, sure. you can see that right away. The reward is immediate. Yeah, right. right, so um, immediate gratification. Yeah. So um, you have to have some way, basically, to do it, or the students aren't going to uh, do it. I can remember one time, it wasn't really anything to do with extensive reading, but I had assigned homework in the next class. I was so busy with other things, I forgot to check it. And one student muttered to another student, I wasted my time. <laughs> I overheard him and said, no, you didn't. But how do you convince the student of that, yeah, right? right. You know, here they did the work and I didn't even look at it. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's basically the attitude of a lot of people. And it was probably my attitude when I was a yeah. university yeah, student yeah, as well. You know, so at any rate, that's why I decided there had to be some easy way to assess whether they've read it or not. And so... Um, when I went to TESOL one year, I found a program called the Accelerated Reader Program, mm -hmm. which is made for native speaking children. And at that point in time, I was impressed because they had something like 15,000 or, or 20,000 quizzes on various books. Now it's up over 200,000 wow. 
quizzes that they have. But <laughs> it's wow. impressive. But every single book has a quiz with 10 items only. Everyone gets the same 10 items. Mm. The only thing that changes is the order of the A, B, C, and D multiple choice questions. They're all multiple choice questions. And usually it's controlled by the librarian in an elementary school. The student comes in and says, I want to take a quiz, and the teacher then allows them to log in and take it. Um, so it wasn't working very well in our situation, especially since the students could easily remember what the questions were, mm, make sure, a record of them, sure. tell it to other students. And so the answers to the questions uh, went around very quickly. And then, of course, they only had questions for standard books that youth read in the U.S., in Canada, basically. And so um, we had to write our own quizzes, teacher-made quizzes, following their pattern. And we could do up to 100, but that was the limit. Um, but eventually, after using that for about five years, um, too many students had the answers. And we had it was a lot of work for us because we actually had to have them come in during lunchtime into the computer room with a teacher there to watch them, have them take out their ID card to make sure that the person was actually taking the quiz for him or herself because we found a guy taking a quiz for a girl once. Um, <laughs> You're not Kimiko, are you? <laughs> right, that was the, the issue. So um, I said, well, it's about time we made our own. And fortunately, um, I was very familiar with Moodle mm -hmm. uh, because actually I had developed some of Moodle's original features oh, really? yeah, for... Um, um, quizzes, um, quiz analysis uh, function of Moodle, so you could see an item analysis of how the quizzes worked. And, um, gee, I can't remember. And a number of other features of Moodle were things that I developed. Could, and so... Yeah, could you introduce Moodle for those of us who are not very... Oh, yeah, okay. Um, jumping good, ahead of myself. Good, good. No, no, this is good. This is a really natural a natural segue into, <laughs> into mReader, but starting at, at a basic, what is... Yeah. Is Moodle. Yeah. Well, uh, Moodle is a, an online system that teachers use in many universities. Mm -hmm. There are other ones too. Uh, Blackboard is a very uh, well-known one. The main difference between Blackboard and Moodle is Blackboard you have to pay for, and Moodle is free. Um, they work very much alike in many ways, but since Moodle is free and it's open source, you can go in and, and change the code yourself and make it work the way you like to make it work, which is sure. why I was able to develop various features for it that didn't exist. And so Moodle allows, say, teachers to put up homework assignments, put up quizzes uh, for students to access it, to download the material for the days they weren't there. Um, there's all sorts of various functions that uh, it can be used for. It can be used for online courses that use Moodle as the basis where the students never even you know, go to a university. They do everything online. And then many courses, the teacher will just put some homework um, online or materials online or writing assignments. The student will have to go online to submit it or there'll be a discussion forum where the students have to uh, give their ideas on specific topics or re respond to what other students have said and so forth. So anyway, that's Moodle. Mm -hmm. But one of the functions that Moodle already had was a quiz function. You can make quizzes 
and then uh, students could take the quizzes. And that is what I wanted, mm. but Moodle didn't have some of the functions I wanted. For example, I wanted to be able to control when or how often the students could access the quizzes. I wanted them to be able to take quizzes, only books at, at their specific level, mm -hmm. not any book in the system, which was one of the problems with Accelerated Reader. Um, I wanted to make it more gamified. So um, on mReader and Moodle Reader at that time, uh, every time they passed a quiz, they got the cover of the book on their own personal page. So they could collect the yeah, covers like yeah. a stamp like, collection. Like stickers. Yeah. Right, or something, or badges. We <laughs> all know how motivating stickers are. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we made this gamified system within Moodle, yeah. and it worked pretty well um, with one small problem, and that is we had to make the quizzes. And we have now about 14,000 books in our library. That doesn't mean 14,000 different titles, but um, we had probably 600 or 700 different books at that point in time, which we needed quizzes for. Mm -hmm. And write the quizzes. Right, and so writing the quizzes was a lot of work. So what we did is we made our system free for other schools to use. Mm -hmm. Because we realized then that they would say, hey, <laughs> you don't have quizzes for this or that. Can I make the quiz? And that worked quite well, actually. And then uh, I, I used my um, connections with some of the publishers. Um, like Oxford is um, probably the best example because I had actually made some websites for Oxford already. Um, I asked them if they would make the quizzes for their Bookworms books. And we made, actually, stages one, two, and three and then Oxford had their editors make uh, four, five, and six. The higher levels. The higher yeah. levels for it. And so we had the full set of bookworms uh, quizzes uh, very early on. And then um, Rob Waring, who's also very active in the Extensive Reading uh, Foundation, he's the series editor for a number of uh, series for Cengage. And he had somebody make the quizzes for all the books that he had uh written or supervised. And um, slowly it accumulated, and more and more publishers actually became, um, well, enthusiastic or even wanting to have their books on uh, our system because there were schools who were saying, uh-uh, we aren't going to buy that book. You don't have a quiz for it because they wanted every book that their students to read to have a quiz. Yeah, and so... It grew from an initial 200 or 300 when we started to now there are a little over 6,000 wow. uh, quizzes available. Incredible. Right. Yeah, so it, it's growing, and it keeps growing. Just today I had um, an email from Black Cat saying, well, we just had all these quizzes written. When are you going to get them online? Because they made the quiz, but now we have to pay somebody to actually input them into the system, and uh, that takes a bit of time as well. But, yeah. So about the quizzes, and um, uh, I, I think we've, we've already kind of established why, why you think there's a need for a quiz just mm -hmm. for, to motivate students to actually do the work. But can you tell us about, like... Um, the kind of quiz it is? Is this a difficult quiz? Is it a simple mm -hmm. quiz? Mm -hmm. um, when you have outsourced people writing these quizzes, there's any kind of uh, quality control, control, right? How, yeah, how right. do you deal with those? Yeah. Well, 
We have a set of guidelines, and in them we say that the questions are not supposed to be difficult. We are not trying to test how well they understood what they read. We're trying to test whether they read it or not, right? <laughs> and so in order to do that, we do have these guidelines, and hopefully the authors stick to the guidelines. As far as quality control goes, it's difficult for us to check the questions before we put them up because we haven't read the books ourselves. So that makes it a bit difficult. But what we do do is we have an item analysis system. And after a certain number of students have taken the quiz, we can look at the results and see mm -hmm. if an, uh, a larger than usual number of students are failing that quiz or if any particular question on that quiz is, getting, is almost always wrong. Well, actually, always right actually isn't very good for a quiz. It's, it's right. So, yeah, those questions are flagged, and we have something called the uh, Quiz Quality Control, uh, Quiz Quality Assurance Group that systematically goes over various series and looks at these results and then fixes the items that they think uh, aren't working well. And then we re upload those to the system. So, that's how we try to take care of that. But also, the passing rate is 60%, and um, most students manage to get 60% if they've read the book, even if there's one or two bad questions. Uh, as far as the type of questions go, um, there's multiple choice questions, um, and then a subset of that is who said questions, where and you're like, who said, I'm going to kill you, um, and where... If you read the story, there's only one person in the book that could have said something like that. Sure. That's the type of question we are hoping that the authors of the quiz questions uh, make. Right. Yeah, not really fine, uh, finely pointed ones about which of these, when there are four friends, uh, which of the friend is it that said this, because it's hard to keep track of things like that. Then there are some true and false questions. There are only 10 items, generally, uh, in all. And the last one is the fun one. It's an ordering uh, item where for... It only works for stories, not for a lot of other uh, types of books. But they, we have, say, 15 events that, the, that are input into the quiz program. And then of those, they get randomly eight of them. And they have to drag and drop them into the correct order. Yeah. And so that drag and drop function also was something I initially made for Moodle because that didn't exist either. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. You keep... Uh, saying we, and I'm curious, uh, other than yourself, who was involved in this? Well, here at uh, Kyoto Sangyo, uh, initially it was uh, me and Matthew Claflin and Amanda Gillis Furutaka, basically, who were cooperating with it. And um, others had also contributed quizzes. Um, I was um, at one point in time in charge of the general education English program. And at that point in time, we had 12 contract teachers, and we got most of them to help by making some of the uh, quizzes as well. Yeah. So, yeah, that is we. Then as far as, as, far as the overall control of the system goes, um, I don't actually do the physical coding of the uh, the quizzes, uh, not the quizzes, but the program. Uh, we have a, a Russian programmer, Igor, uh, <laughs> who d 
does the actual programming, and he he's been doing it since the very beginning. He had done some other things for uh, for me and for some other uh, Moodle users in Japan, and was quite reliable and rather inexpensive to use. So, Igor uh, does all the programming. Props, Igor. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Igor. Thanks, Igor. <laughs> I would know. I would like to know about the transition from Moodle reader to VM reader. Um, so. We had Moodle Reader, but of course, in order to use it, your school had to have a Moodle system. Mm -hmm. And many schools, like if they're using Blackboard, they don't have Moodle. And even if you had Moodle, you had to be friends with the administrator of the system to allow him to put all this extra stuff into the Moodle. And a lot of schools weren't cooperative with that. And so I wanted as many people as possible to use it. Initially, I made a separate moodlereader.org website, which was a Moodle that any teacher could use. But I had to help all the teachers set up their site and so forth. And uh, it was a nightmare, basically. Yeah. And it got out of hand very quickly. And I said, this isn't going to work. So the next step was to make a separate system that didn't use Moodle. And so we basically emulated what was already there, but we did it outside, so it just worked in a regular browser. Mm -hmm. And that became what I'm calling M-Reader. The M stands for Moodle, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so basically, right now it works on a browser, as you said. Yeah, it works on a browser. It works on an iPhone, an iPad. Um, well, any browser, really, uh, yeah. And in fact, right now, about 70% of the users around the world are using it on um, a mobile device, not on a computer. So say a, a teacher wants to, to implement an ER program, how would they go about um, setting up a, an account or a class with mm. them reader? They just write to me. Um, my easiest address is just Tom Rob, no spaces, uh, at gmail.com. Rob with two Bs. Rob with two Bs, okay. right. And one M. Uh, and <laughs> anyway, um, they uh, just send a query to me. I send them some initial information and a password so they can get in and, and check it out and see if it's what they need. Mm -hmm. And then when they write back and say, yes, this will work for me, then I, I send them um, an access code, which allows them to set up an account. And it's basically self-managed. I have videos there. So once uh, videos and text help and so forth. So they can basically set it up without having to come back and say, now what do I do next? Mm -hmm. I'd say maybe 80% of the people who start it never have to come back and you know ask more questions to get it up and running for the students. It's, that aspect is working fairly well. Yeah. So that's all there is to setting it up. One problem a lot of um, people have I'm not quite sure if it's a problem or not. A lot of people are under the misconception that M-Reader actually has the reading material itself. Mm -hmm. And once they find out that it doesn't, then they aren't interested because that's what they were really looking for. Of course, now there's xreading.com yeah, yeah. that um, yeah. does have the reading material, so that's a solution for them. Good. Okay. So uh, preparing for this interview, both Jose and I had read... Um, an article you wrote in 2013, is this right? Sorry, 2015. Mm -hmm. um, quizzes, a sin against the sixth commandment in defense of M. Reader. And we, we both commented how we liked, that we liked the use of, of 
commandment. A commandment. <laughs> well, let's talk about what is the sixth commandment. <laughs> the sixth commandment is um, remind yeah, yeah, okay. me. What I is can remind exactly you. Exactly? Oh, uh, reading should be its own reward. Yeah. Okay. So this is coming from. Yeah, Day and Bamford. Day and Bamford. Yeah, this which... is coming from Day and Bamford. Their Bible, to keep <laughs> the terminology <laughs> or use the same metaphor, uh, their Bible about extensive reading, which it was basically the very first book that outlined all the various aspects of how to get an extensive reading program started. And they just call these the 10 characteristics of an extensive reading program. But some people took these to mean the Ten Commandments, Commandments. that, you know, it had to adhere to these um, ten criteria or it wasn't extensive reading. Mm -hmm. And if you study the ten uh, characteristics that they have there, there are inconsistencies uh, right there in them. For example, it says that the teacher should be a model reader, but if you're doing most of the reading outside of the class, how is the teacher supposed to show that the, he or she is a model reader, right? Um, that sort of assumes that the reading was done in a class. And there are other um, aspects of the, um, the characteristics which are not necessarily so for many programs. The important thing is they read a lot. Okay, and how much is a lot can be defined just as much more than they would do otherwise. And some people will say, well, um, junior high school students, all they read is well, one paragraph every two weeks. Um, and so if you get them to read one book every two weeks or one book or two, you know, every month, that's more than they normally would do. So uh, it's a very flexible definition, but basically the more the better. The more the better. Right. So the Sixth Commandment is uh, many people were criticizing Moodle Reader or M-Reader as giving quizzes, and you shouldn't be doing that because it's supposed to be for enjoyment, right? The reward should just be reading it. And here, the reward was passing the course, basically, mm. right? And so there were quite a number of people, fortunately not all that many, but still a significant number of people who were objecting to using it because we were giving quizzes to the students. Um, but actually, some students actually enjoy the quizzes. For many students, it sort of is closure for reading the book. They've read the book. Now, Moodle Reader tells me I've, I understood it. Um, some students enjoy the challenge. Um, there was one student, um, another teacher told me this, the teacher came after the term was over and said he wanted to continue reading until the next you know, uh, term began. Um, could he continue reading? And the teacher said, well, are you studying for an IELTS exam or something like that, that you want to improve your, your reading ability? He said, no, I want to collect the covers. Yeah. That, was, <laughs> that was his reason for wanting to read more. Some people, though, feel that... Uh, would take the pleasure out of reading, right? I mean, something can be pleasurable and, until somebody tells you that you have to do that, you know, that it, until it becomes an obligation. That's true. I mean, there are all kinds of people in the world, and there are people like that. But for others, once they start reading, they actually realize that they enjoy, they enjoy it. And it. some sure. people get hooked on reading yeah. once we get them doing extensive reading. And then the ideal is that the students will forget 
that they are reading and just enjoy the book. And um, on Moodle Reader, when a student finishes the book, we have five follow-up questions that are asked, uh, that they are asked. And the last one of them is, how much could you forget that you are studying and just enjoy the book on a scale of one to five? And uh, there is variation from reader to reader. We you know, have statistics on that. Yeah. Hmm? What did they say? <laughs> well, it, it's just a one through five choice. It's a, a Likert scale. And so um, I could tell you which books students say that they, oh, you know, oh, okay. they're yeah, always I was, studying. I was going to ask, like, on average, do students, do most students forget that they are... Uh, most they, students uh, still think that they are studying. <laughs> But again, there's variation from book to book, which is more of what we were interested in, is what sort of variation do you find in specific books or specific series? Some series are better written than others, mm -hmm. and the students tend to enjoy them more than others. You know, so I'm not sure if I should publicly say which series those are. I'll bring down the wrath of the other publishers. <laughs> um. The other day, Mark Briley uh, told us that he feels it's very important to have students read in class. Uh, at least, I mean, that you can have them read outside the classroom time uh, as much as they can and all, but he feels that it's really, really important to dedicate time in class uh, mm -hmm. to reading. Mm -hmm. What's your view? Or your well, I agree. Um, we have a reading class uh, for our first and second years, but it isn't just... In uh, extensive reading, it's supposed to combine intensive reading, skills-based uh, reading, and reading all sorts of uh, genre. Mm -hmm. But in the first year in particular, we start out just having them read simple graded readers to get them into the habit. So they're reading in class as well as out of class. And we continue uh, very often having them all read the same reader. We have class sets of 25 okay. of the same book. And we'll bring them in with some sort of a worksheet that we've prepared, and they read the book and use the, uh, while using the worksheet, for example, in different ways. I have various um, uh, strip stories. Are you familiar with uh, strip stories? Where no, not really um, it's not what you think. Uh, <laughs> I'm not familiar with those either. <laughs> um, it's just like. Uh, Uh, sentences on a piece of paper, one on each line, and then you cut it up into okay. long yeah. strips. Yeah. And so you take the summary of the book or you know whatever you've written as a summary of the book, and then you chop it up into strips and then scramble them, and then the students usually in pair have to put them back in the right order. Yeah. Yeah. And you can make it even more challenging by taking each of the sentences that you made and cutting them each in half. So now first they have to find which beginning of a sentence goes with which end, and then after they have that, then put them in the same order. So, I mean, it's a reading activity, uh, but it's based on the extensive reading or the, you know, the, the graded reader that they've read. In fact, most graded readers um, that are available, the publisher has tried to make them so they're usable both as extensive readers And intensive readers, um, they very often have questions at the end of each chapter or something or uh, an additional uh, manual for the teacher or whatever. So it can be used for intensive reading if that's what the curriculum requires. So they can be used both ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think the last thing, we kind of got a little away from mReader, but going back, what do you see as the future for mReader? Where do you think it can go as a platform? Well, hopefully it'll continue to grow the system. Um, well, right now we have about 100,000 students using it in 600 schools and let's see in about 45 countries, I think it is. So, I mean, there are more than, more than 45 countries in the world, and it's main, mainly used right now at the university level. So there's a huge clientele you know, at the secondary level that could start to use it once uh, people realize that extensive reading actually works. Mm -hmm. And so um, there could be several hundred thousand students using it in the future, um, at which point in time, I, it's going to need more management than <laughs> uh, than currently. But um, the system itself is built that it will handle it. The server can handle a much larger uh, number of people. Right now, uh, simultaneously, we have between 150 and 300 people using it at any one time, you know, during the busiest periods. And for some reason, not so much on weekends. <laughs> but... Um, on the management side, it isn't just me. Um, we have other people that help, like um, Aaron Campbell, who's at Kyoto Gaidai, is the number two person. So if I get hit by a truck, supposedly he can take over and uh, you know, manage the technical aspect of things. He's good at the technical aspect, and we, we keep very close notes on uh, bugs and so forth and problems and how we fixed them so that the next time the same sort of issue comes up, uh, he can refer to that to see how it fixed. And I'd actually like to get more people involved. If anybody who's listening to this uh, is interested in helping out in any aspect of mReader, we'd uh, like to have you. For example, right now we have just one person who uploads all the quizzes, and uh, she does it for uh, pay, actually, as um she, moonlighting from her real job during the day. And uh, so when she's busy, nothing gets done. You know? yeah. um, but the system works. But um, if there was a huge influx of uh, more students or more graded readers uh, needed to be uploaded or something, we could use more help. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're listening. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it straight from the man. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for... for developing that service. I think that's a great service to, to the education community and to the reading community. And well, that's, that's I've enjoyed working on it, and I continue to work on it yeah. until I can't work on it anymore, <laughs> basically. <laughs> So that was the interview. Yeah, thanks again, Tom. That was wonderful. I really appreciate you taking us through um, how you developed uh, Moodle Reader and then M Reader, and kind of also your pedagogy and, and, and quizzing and kind of your defense of that. I thought that was really interesting. So I hope you listener too thought that it was interesting. <laughs> well, Tom multiplied our listeners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks for that too. <laughs> that too. That's important. And um, so uh, yeah. That's it for today. Um, but looking ahead, what have we what have we got on our schedule? Well, we have a long holiday. 
sorry to tell you about this, but um, Travis and I are going to take a long break. Uh, we'll be back with the fifth episode on September 21st. Um, I can't, can't even imagine September 21st from now. That'd be autumn. Yeah. Uh, looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll probably be talking about uh, motivation and maybe reluctant readers and uh, how to motivate them to continue reading graded readers or maybe about uh, readability. That is what makes a book or uh, graded reader easier or difficult to read, which mm. factors have to be borne in mind when preparing a graded reader. Uh, but it's not decided yet. And uh, yeah, that'll be for October, September 21st. Great. Well, uh, we hope you... Uh, don't forget us. Don't forget <laughs> us, right? Don't forget us. And we hope you are, are eagerly awaiting our return. So for uh, Jose and I'm Travis, as we say at the end, happy reading. Happy reading. Thank you.